Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello, High Truth listeners. Thank you for joining me for a new nature-filled episode. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. This headline caught my attention. Dude, your cannabis habit has an epic carbon footprint. It was published in Mother Jones, January 15th, 2022. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of water for optimal marijuana grows. You have to have the right humidity and temperature, and that takes electricity or gas. How much energy does it take? In a study of 1,000 locations across the United States, the median emission of growing one kilogram of cannabis was about 3,600 kilograms of CO2 equivalent emissions. That sounds a lot, but I have no reference of what a carbon emission is. So for reference, a kilogram of tomatoes grown in a greenhouse with natural gas emits two kilograms. That's two kilograms CO2 footprint for tomatoes and 3,600 kilograms CO2 footprint for pot. The other difference between tomato plants and cannabis plants is that no one is protecting tomato plants with machine guns. Dude. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, my name is Insam Principato, and I work as a nurse in the emergency department in California. I see firsthand the effects of drugs on mankind, and it's devastating. I also care about our environment. What are the environmental risks of illegal marijuana grows on California's environmental health? And Sam, thank you for your question and your service on the front lines of healthcare. And Sam is another one of my favorite nurses. A few years ago, I led a group of nurses and doctors to Israel and Aunt Sam came along. We had a great time. It was very special. We did not talk about drugs, but we did learn a lot. And I love bringing adults to Israel. For me, it's like taking kids to Disneyland. But back to your question, Aunt Sam. Yes, you and I see the tragic effects of human condition because of drugs. What about planet Earth and our environment? To answer your question, we need an environment expert. Dr. Greta Wenger 
Dr. Wenger is the Executive Director of Integral Ecology Research Center, a nonprofit research organization. Greta has a PhD in ecology and has over 20 years of ecological research experience throughout California and Oregon. You can find Greta Wenger's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Greta Wenger, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm very excited. This is going to be a very different conversation than, than what we usually have on the podcast. We usually have, um, you know, doctors, pharmacists, addiction professionals, scientists. We've had a Hollywood director, law enforcement, and you are our very first ecologist. So tell us, what is an ecologist and why did you become one? Ecologists are people who study the interactions of living things and my interest really started with the idea of looking at how wildlife species in, interact with their environment, with humans, with human things, um, and with the abiotic environment as well. And it was just an interest in um, really looking at issues that affected the ecology of our planet and the species that live on it and trying to identify problems and solutions to those ecological problems. So tell us, you know, when I go to the hospital, I have a, you know, mask and a stethoscope. I never see the light of day. Uh, your work is out outside. Tell us what your, what, what is a work of an ecologist involved? What do you do? Well, there are many different kinds of ecologists. So uh, there are ecologists that study tiny little uh, living organisms, even um, molecular ecology, which gets down to looking at DNA and how um, species DNA makeup affects how they interact with their environment. Um, I, in particular had an interest in larger animals and most specifically mammals and, and to a certain extent amphibians, which are aquatic wildlife and how they interact with their environments. And so a day in the life of an ecologist of, of my type of ecology uh, is being outside most of the time, looking uh, for animals, uh, finding them, in different ways. And this could be uh, you know, looking for sign left behind from animals, whether it's tracks or setting up remote cameras to look at behaviors, uh, identifying where animals have been, uh, looking at how they might be using the resources of their environment. And so there's a lot of different ways that uh, I can do my job. Um, when I'm trying to really look at the ecology of the species I'm interested in, but it almost always includes being outside and collecting data and samples in the outside environment in which these species live. So while I have the white coat and the stethoscope, you have like a backpack and you're outdoors uh, in, in pans uh, collecting things and testing things and, uh, and looking for animals. Exactly. So I, I would probably have a backpack, a pair of binoculars, uh, some sample bags to collect samples, nitrile gloves to uh, you know, be sterile when I'm collecting samples. Uh, a lot of my work in particular uses remote cameras, which are, are ones that can be set up in the environment and, and are motion triggered. So we can get snapshots of animals doing their, their normal thing without humans around. 
Uh, we also do some more hands-on work with certain species that we GPS collar. So we capture anesthetized species. Um, smaller carnivores is usually what I've been working with and follow them through GPS technology. And that includes, you know, going out and, and tracking these animals that we have collared to see where they're going, where they're living. So there's a lot of different equipment involved, uh, but yeah, I think one of the main things is a backpack and enough water to get you through the whole day in the forest. That's great. Um, you moved from New York, right? And, and you were at Cornell to Humboldt State, California, which is ground zero really for marijuana. And, and that's what really made you an expert in marijuana grows. Did you know what, as a New Yorker coming to California, that Humboldt State was known for that? Is that what attracted you to go there? No, not at all. Um, I, I almost ended up out on the West Coast accidentally. Uh, I, I moved out here after I, I graduated from Cornell, knowing that I would go into some graduate school, some sort, whether it was to continue studying ecology, or uh, I also thought about going into environmental law. But I ended up um, here knowing that at least in the West, there's a lot going on in terms of, of eco you know, graduate programs, and law schools that have good ecology and environmental programs. Um, so I, I had been here a few years when I discovered Humboldt State University and its great wildlife program. And so that's sort of when I transitioned up to here, um, still not knowing anything about uh, it being sort of the epicenter of of marijuana production in California and probably most of the United States. And so that it, it was only a few years in that I that I really came across that idea. And in fact, um, the first time I really was exposed to it was when I was hiking this you know remote forest stream, backpacking with um, my then boyfriend, who is now my husband. And we came across a a a marijuana garden in the middle of the forest. And I didn't even know what it was. I, I just sort of laughed. And when he pointed it out to me, do you know you're standing in a marijuana field? And I looked around and thought, oh my gosh, what, what, is, what is this place? And so we, of course, quickly got out of there. But I think that was what gave me the first idea that this even existed out here. Wow. Um, so Ann Sam is a, a nurse who works in the emergency department. She sees the costs of drugs on human condition, and she's wondering what the cost is on the environmental health, which is, wow, I told her you are the perfect expert. Uh, what is the, the cost of, of drugs in environmental health? And you just showed us an example how you saw it um, early in your life, hiking. Right. So there... Where do I begin? So there are so many different aspects of this drug, this um, this plant that that really have a lot of implications environmentally beyond which most people recognize, especially people outside of California, um, and even people in California that that didn't sort of grow up with this uh, this this whole, you know, other world of, of marijuana, the, the marijuana industry and knowing about it. So there, there's so many things and ways and avenues that the production of, of this drug really affect the environment uh, from, from 
water use to pesticide contamination to habitat fragmentation. Let's, um, let's go through that one at a time. Tell us about water, right. water use. Okay. All right. So cannabis is a plant that requires a lot of water, like a, a huge amount of water. It, you know, depending on where it's grown, uh, it, it really fluctuates in, in how much water it needs. Um, the, the particular type of, of cannabis production that I study and know most about is what we call trespass cannabis cultivation. And that's um, where, where growers go out onto someone else's land or public lands and grow it in very remote environments. And so I think that this, this type of growing probably is the most demanding because what often happens is the, the plants are grown in, in soils and environments that would typically support a plant that is this thirsty. And so what happens is the, the growers will draw water from hundreds of yards, uh, half mile, two miles away from where they're actually cultivating the, the cannabis and uh, dewater forest headwater streams or springs uh, or even draw from, from salmon bearing streams nearby. So it is, it is a huge amount of water, billions and billions of gallons of California's water per year is used for this industry. Um, but even aside from the, the work most of the work I do, which like I said, is, is what we call trespass cultivation um, on public lands. Private land cultivation on, on people's own property is a, a, an even more significant hit to California and, and the West's water sources really. I mean, the, some estimates you know, say that a, your average cannabis plant uses six gallons per day. Uh, we've measured some of the diversion rates going to these remote locations where, where marijuana is being cultivated um, at nine and a half to 10 to 11 gallons per day per plant. Um, so if you sort of project that over the, the millions and millions of plants being grown um, out here in the West every year, whether it's on private land or on public lands, uh, you're talking billions and billions of gallons of water. So, so it is incredibly significant. Uh, we don't necessarily see a decline in it in these, these drought years that, that California has been facing. Um, it's projected that this year is gonna be one of the, the worst drought years and we are technically in a hundred year drought at this point. It's been, um, identified as, as you know, the, the situation where we've, we haven't seen in hundreds of years. So uh, I don't anticipate seeing a decline in the number of, of cannabis plants being produced. I don't understand it. So illegal grows, I get it. They're stealing water, okay? But the legal grows, um, I don't understand how they can get away with using so much water and not having an outcry while I, as a California citizens, you know, have to put, you know, succulents in my lawn and governor then Brown was known to make our, uh, our state Brown because we got rid of all our, our, our grass and put in fake grass and got rid of shrubberies. I mean, there's probably not a household in California that didn't do something to save water. And yet we're seeing the opposite effect. And is there any outcry on that? Not that I'm aware of. I, I think that, I mean, to be honest, the, the number of legal 
or I should say permitted growers in California is, is really small compared to the unpermitted uh, growers that are just, you know, growing willy nilly out there um, using using uh, our our public's water. Uh, there there seems to be, I mean, over the past years, I, I've sort of seen definitely a change in people's perceptions of of this plant and this industry and how it does have an environmental impact. And I think that is one of the, the most significant areas of environmental impact that, that most Californians and most people in the West in general um, see as, as a, a huge issue. And I, I especially think this year, even with the growers who have come into compliance and are, are legally growing in California, um, the, the water issues are going to be huge for them. And, and I think that, you know, especially, you know, when you're, when you're talking cannabis versus uh, food grown in the Central Valley, there will be a, a significant uh, controversy when it, when it comes to how people, you know, really the perception of all this water use going into production of cannabis. Amazing. And so for each, um, legal grow how many illegal grows are out there or can you answer that uh well i i can't answer it accurately but i can definitely estimate and and i have some accurate estimates from people who who track these things and thousands and thousands thousands <laughs> and thousands I would say yes for so, every legal. So if I go to um a dispensary and I'm buying um cannabis is that coming is there anyone who tracks whether they're selling from a legal grow versus an illegal grow? Is that tracked? I, I believe that there is tracking uh, to the best of the state's ability. So there is the Department of Cannabis that 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 does its best to ensure that dispensaries that are legal uh, are are being sourced from legal growers. Uh, we do know that, you know, there's been a little work done, um, not by us, but by some journalists, actually, and reporters uh, looking at whether contaminated, um, which typically, well, contaminated weed, basically, we know comes from illegal grows because the, there are such strict regulations on illegal growers, um, is making it into the dispensaries. So, uh, though there are uh, safety checks in place and there's a framework in place to ensure that only legal weed makes it to, to the dispensaries. Um, we know that that's not 100% uh, effective. So, so um, pesticides, which is the next problem on the environment, has been found in, in legal dispensaries. Yes. Okay. So tell yes. us about uh, pesticides. The only one I know about, um, because I've seen it in humans, um, is rat poisoning, which is a blood thinner, anticoagulant, mm -hmm. and, um, and you could have bleeding. It's like, wait, how people? How come people are bleeding from marijuana? And, and that's why it's because they had had that in uh, as a contaminant. Exactly. So what we see in ninety eight percent of the illegal grows that we go to uh, are all kinds of pesticides. So you mentioned anticoagulant redenocides uh, that, you know, basically rat poison. Uh, we see at, I'd say, 75 to 80% of the grows we go to, uh, they, they use these poisons to 
get rid of basically all the, the small critters that might be munching on their cannabis plants or um, destroying the irrigation line. Uh, but pretty much anything that, that comes into the grow is, is, could be a threat or a nuisance to production. So those are commonly used at these sites. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in my opinion, it's, it's very different problems when it comes to pesticides. That, that's a, it's an acute killer of a lot of animals, but it remains in the environment a lot longer. And so you see, um, you see it in the soil, you see it being taken up by the higher predators and it, it has a very long half-life and it gets metabolized very slowly and therefore um, it just sort of makes its way throughout the food web. And so let's say you, you have anticoagulant redenticide at one row and a rat eats it, but the rat doesn't immediately die. And then an, uh, an owl eats the rat. Well, now it's got the anticoagulants and when it dies, it goes into the soil and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's a huge sort of legacy issue that we see as ecologists, uh, but there are, so many other insecticides that are used at these grows that are highly toxic, much more toxic than anticoagulant redenticides um, that really frighten everybody. And those are things like carbofurin, methamidifos, um, methamyl. These are all uh, insecticides, neuro neurological or neurotoxic insecticides that are used at again, 75 to 80% of, of the grows, um, they're used for different reasons. And we know that they're really effective insecticides, but they're so toxic that all three of those, um, well, two, carbofurin and methamidifos have been banned for legal uses in the United States. Um, methamyl has some um, legal uses in, in much smaller concentrations than we see out there. So, they are used to basically protect the plants. So they're sprayed on the plants, they're, they're applied to the soil. It's a systemic insecticide. So, you know, if, if they're applied to the soil, the plants, the cannabis plants can take those um, chemicals up and basically will transpire the chemicals out to the foliage, which then makes any, you know, little tiny critter that lands on the plant um, die pretty much immediately. Uh, so, so we know they're good insecticides, but they're so toxic that the growers will use them to kill larger animals too. And what we see is these pesticides in use at the grows in much higher concentrations uh, than is that would ever be recommended in, in any place that they would be legally used or you know by the manufacturer's specifications. So. You know what? Let's say you get a, a one liter bottle of, of carbofurin and it's supposed to be diluted into a thousand gallons. Let's say um, we see them using it in undiluted concentrations, which is really scary. I mean, you're talking a quarter teaspoon of carbofurin um, would kill me or you uh, within 10 minutes. And where, where are they getting it? It's illegal. So are these um, pesticides being brought illegally into the United States? They are, they're, they are being brought in through our Southern borders from Mexico um, where they have been legal, though I have heard recently the Mexican government is considering um, 
banning them as well, but I don't think it's happened yet, uh, but they are on that track right now. So they are, interestingly, some of them are actually manufactured in the United States and then exported to other countries like Mexico and then brought back up through uh, the border. Uh, there are some manufacturers in Mexico that, um, that still produce it and, and that makes it up here. We know they're coming from there because they're all in Spanish labeling. So most of, um, if I, I, I think every bottle of carboferrin or methamidifose I've ever seen out there is in Span with Spanish labeling. So yeah, that's how it's making it up here, even though they're banned in the United States. So that's a, another huge issue, a huge problem um, that, that we see these grows sort of facilitating the importation of illegal pesticides. Wow. Uh, it, yeah. it sounds like, and I don't know if this is going too far, but what fentanyl is doing to humankind, um, these pesticides are doing to our environment. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's scary. They're, they're, they're so toxic. Um, they kill hundreds of animals, you know, per grow site, I'm sure when they're used in these manners, which is, you know, they basically bait, bait food with carboferrin or methamyl or methamidifose to attract bears and, and foxes and coyotes and whatever um, to come in, consume it, and then wow. die. Pretty much so one of the things when you're walking around with your backpack is getting soil samples and you, and you test for these, these chemicals? Exactly. So our organization, we uh, are a scientific research organization, um, mostly ecologists. Our, our goal is to really understand uh, how the all the different ways that these grows are impacting our environment. So we're not just looking at the animals, we're looking at the water, uh, whether it's contaminated, we're looking at the soil, uh, whether it's contaminated, looking at the native vegetation. So sort of the surrounding plants around the cannabis plants that are that are still there. So we will take soil samples, we put passive uh, samplers in the water systems below the grows. And basically what those do is they filter water for about 20 to 30 days. And then we'll test those, those filters to see if it's contaminated. And, and more often than not, we find the soil within and just below the grows to be contaminated with these highly lethal chemicals. Uh, occasionally we will find it in the water systems, which um, is, is really scary because when you think about, you know, you're, you're in the remote forest, but downstream a half mile or, or a mile is a little mountain community that's depending on, on these water sources for, for their, for their entire water supply. Uh, so unfortunately we have detected carboferrin and some other, uh, dangerous chemicals in, in these headwater systems as well. Does that make it to uh, human drinking water? It, it could. We, we know that it is in uh, detectable concentrations below grows in, in the same water systems that are supplying drinking water. We have not actually tested the drinking water, uh, but, but we have found it in um, basically the, the source for downstream communities. Is the drinking water safe in California given this? I mean, do you drink from the tap? Is that okay? I mean, we all think it is. 
yeah, I think that that the consensus is that the water we drink is safe. Uh, I will say that in um, in Trinity County, which is near where I live, there there actually was a public service announcement put out a couple of years ago, uh, alerting the and Trinity County is a very um, super rural county. You know, there's probably only like ten or twenty thousand people in the entire county. Most of them live in out in the forest or just in little communities in, in the, the forest valleys. Uh, there was a public service announcement put out uh, basically telling the residents, hey, you have rows in, in your mountains in, uh, you know, that are essentially contaminating your water sources. So just be aware of this and, and, and you know, take your health into your own hands and, and do some digging and figure it out if, if your drinking water is safe. And I think that, that it, it didn't, unfortunately didn't catch a lot of people there by surprise because um, the industry is, is so huge and in Trinity County, which is part of the Emerald Triangle uh, of cannabis. And so, you know, I think it was just sort of a, holy cow, is this real? Like, is, do we really have to worry about carbofuran in our drinking water? And, you know, our, our forests, our water systems do a pretty good job at filtering these things, um, thankfully. And it is a water soluble um, substance, but at the same time, <laughs> just the thought of it, it is really scary. Yeah. So where, where are, California is a, is a huge um, state. Where where are the illegal? Is this a few little, you know, places in the mountain or how, how big of a problem is this really in California? It, from my perspective, it's a huge problem. There are, they're in the thousands and thousands and thousands of grows, whether they're the you know, trespass grows out in the forest or unpermitted grows in, uh, you know, down in the valleys or, you know, the foothills. It's not just up here in Northern California. It is throughout the entire state. Uh, basically, if you've got um, water and land and you can fly under the radar, there will be illegal cultivation. And that, that's just uh, the state we're in right now. Um, it is pervasive in Southern California. It's pervasive in the deserts of, of Southeastern California, which amazes most people. And that, and that's sort of been a recent development. They're uh, growing, they're growing cannabis in the desert, even though it's a very thirsty plant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, east of, east of LA. It, it's amazing. Uh, there, there was a, a big, uh, uh, article on on it last year just the in the Mojave Desert there's uh, hundreds of unpermitted grows there and and they're either trucking in water which which is really common these days um, you know if you don't have a water source on your property you just truck in huge water tanks and and that's what supports those but it, it's really it, it's hard to find a place in California that that you, that is devoid of, of these grows. Wow. Um, let's talk about how you started your passion in ecology, which is wildlife. What are you, what are you finding in the wildlife? The first study that, that we, that sort of sparked uh, our organization to start looking at this 
really was some of my dissertation research and my my husband, who is the former director of, of this organization, uh, we were both studying a species called the fisher, which was it was basically listed as a candidate for listing under the Endangered Species Act back when we were doing our, our PhD research. And we were working with a bunch of different fisher field fisher research teams that would track fishers. And when, when an animal died, uh, they would send it to us. We were working at UC Davis. That's where we were doing our, our PhDs. And we would work with a pathologist to look at how, uh, you know, how the animals died. Well, after uh, the first year or two, um, we started getting animals that were coming in that had died of anticoagulant rodenticides. And, and, and we found one or two that had died of a different type of rodenticide and then another one or two that had died from carbofurin poisoning. And it really opened our eyes to the fact that, holy cow, you know, these are remote forest animals. They're dependent on, um, you know, they're, they're secretive, they're elusive, they live in the forest. They don't ever want to be seen by, by anybody, especially humans. Uh, so, you know, how, how are they getting exposed and dying from these poisons? And that really sparked our interest in, in researching this, this problem further. And so we started looking into it, working with law enforcement and realizing that the, this issue is a lot bigger than we realized. Uh, law enforcement has known it, it's been an issue for a long time. But as ecologists, you know, we, that's sort of our first exposure to the problem. And so we started looking at, at exposure of fishers across the populations in California. And then we started looking at... Um, some sensitive owl species, the northern spotted owl, which has always been a controversial species um, when it comes to you know it relying on on old forests for its existence and and how that sort of interplayed with the timber industry. And now here's this new threat um, on spotted owls that was completely unanticipated. They're being exposed to these poisons. They're dying from these poisons and. And they're passing them on to to the next generation um, year after year after year. So what we think, you know, we have some evidence to suggest that pretty much any forest animal is at risk uh, of these poisons and, and the other harms caused by these grows. Uh, but it is it's just uh, a really a contamination issue for most wildlife, for most aquatic systems. Um, and then on top of that, it, it's an issue for the fact that, you know, half, let's say in a headwater stream that, that's supporting sensitive amphibian communities, if half the water is missing from that stream one year, well, then, um, you know, that population might be wiped out completely. Well, so, tell us about those. What are those amphibians? Like which animals? Okay, so uh, there's some amphibian species that rely on headwater streams like the, the coastal tailed frog, um, some, some of the salamander species that uh, you only find in these headwater systems. Uh, you know, they, they rely on there being a, a permanent water source in these springs uh, every year. And, and if those are drained of water, then that population might blink out pretty quickly. Uh, most amphibians rely on 
perennial water sources for to breathe and and to create offspring. And so if you know what we think is probably happening is at least in the systems that are being dewatered by both private land cultivation and public land cultivation, uh, amphibian populations are are likely declining and affected, uh, especially the sensitive species that I just mentioned. We've got you know foothill yellow-legged frog lives high up in the in the uh, uh, water system, uh, Sierra Nevada yellow-legged frog, which has been wiped out of 90% of its range across the Sierra Nevada, and now here's this other threat. Um, yeah, there, there's just, you know, it, we- It doesn't seem right. Um, you know, my my son is building a house and he he bought some acreage in, in, in San Diego and for him to build, if they see this one bird in the area, he may not build for the next six months. Like no nests, they look for, you know, they, he has to hire a biologist to scope out his area. And if there's even one bird, one, is it gnat catcher? Um, if they see that, then that that's it. You can't build, you can't do anything. You gotta wait for next season. We gotta let this bird do his thing. And yet <laughs> that's just such a joke um, compared to the harms being done on California lands with this. Yeah, it is really sad. And and what is upsetting is that it it's it sort of it's a cumulative process, right? So you have, let's say you do have a permitted grow um, on a sensitive water system, but you've got 15 unpermitted grows upstream. Um, but everyone that comes into compliance, they're they're doing their part to to try to make sure you know they're abiding by environmental regulations. They're um, minimizing water use, but you've got thousands that are are perpetuating the problem. Um, so you know any one grower might say, "Well, I I don't use that much water. I'm just growing 100 plants a year." But but the next grower upstream from you is doing the same, and downstream and across the canyon and it's just such a, uh, a huge, overwhelming issue here. There's just so many of them that it's, it seems a little backward. Like they're coming up hard about on the the person who's trying to do the right thing, and then in the meantime, you know, they're killing you know bears and owls and fishers. Um, yeah. So you and and mountain lions and these. This is your passion. These are your babies. How do you feel when you come across? doing pathology work on these dead animals uh it's really upsetting i i um you know in the beginning i i would get very frustrated um and sad and and just upset and feel helpless especially like i i'm someone who absolutely loves being outside i would love to go out and just get lost in the wilderness um and you know especially as a woman, I, I don't anymore. I don't just go hiking by myself for, for reasons like this. Um, I used to feel totally comfortable just, you know, walking miles and miles through the forest. And you're not feeling comfortable because you're, um, for your safety, because of these girls? For, for my safety, because of the poisons they use, because, I mean, you know, what I haven't even talked about yet is the fact that most of the growers that, that, you know, of the grows that I work with are armed growers. Um, they're out there illegally. They're, they're, you know, they're living there all year long. Um, 
So it's a risk to anyone recreating on the forest. It's a risk to me as an ecologist because um, if I'm going out trying to track the animals that I'm studying, uh, you know, there's a huge risk there that I might follow an animal right into a grow. But then, yeah, when I'm studying them back at the lab and, oh my gosh, here's another one who's died of carbapurin poisoning. It, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it it's, you know, you feel like so much stride has been made to conserve a lot of species. Um, millions of dollars have gone into species recovery. Um, and, and here's just this sort of emerging threat that is setting conservation back so far. Um, I, I will give you, it, it's not a perfect statistic, but the California condor has been endangered for decades. Um, you know, there was a point where, you know, there are a handful of them left in existence. Um, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars later, we have a condor recovery program that is releasing birds into the wild. This is down on the Ventana wilderness and, and uh, down on the coast, central coast of California. Um, to the point where, okay, you know, we're making some progress. The population is slightly increasing. Well, last year, the Dolan fire, uh, which occurred in Big Sur of California, you know, historically, you know, wonderful ecological area, uh, burned 100,000 acres and killed 11 endangered condors. And 11 doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're talking a population of 60 or 70, it, it's a huge hit to the population. Um, so, you know, yeah, another environmental cat catastrophe caused by these grows. It was a, a grow that had gone undetected and uh, it started a wildfire that, that burned 100,000 acres. How, how did the illegal grow cause a fire? Uh, the, the grower... Uh, well, this actually, it's sort of common, believe it or not, this is not the only time. So there's many different ways that it can happen in the past. Um, sometimes the, if the growers sense that, um, that they're going to get raided by law enforcement, they might start a fire to divert law enforcement um, or to cover up the evidence. And that's happened a few times. Um, there's actually a, a group that, uh, that called CROP cannabis removal on public lands that has done a lot of research looking into grow caused wildfires in California. And they've documented, you know, several, like a million acres that have burned from growers. So it could either be what I just mentioned, you know, divert law enforcement. Um, it could be just campfires, uh, just not tracking the, you know, they live out there all summer. And so they're cooking every day with propane stoves. Um, so campfires and, you know, there have been a few that the growers have actually said, well, I, I grew to cover up evidence of a homicide or, um, you know, I, I knew that law enforcement was coming. So I, I, I started the fire to make sure that they didn't come raid or grow. Um, and that I think was probably the, the issue with the one that killed the 11 condors. Wow. So that's a, a lot of damage as far as our environmental health with water, pesticides, wildlife, fires. Um, so you're in, also involved in cleanup and there are several um, phases of cleanup. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So 
when I'm talking about cleanup, it's of these these trespass grows on public lands. Um, you know, if if you've got an illegal grow on private land, then you're going to hold the, the grower, the illegal grower account, accountable to clean up their own mess um, if they are, are raided and, and dealt with that way. But on public lands, you know, it, these lands belong to you and me and, and all the citizens of the United States. So who, who is really responsible? Um, unfortunately, they're, you know, obviously the growers are responsible, but, but we're not going to get funds from them to, to do these cleanups. So ultimately, you know, the public and the agencies and um, NGOs like, like ours uh, and, and restoration groups come together to, to clean up these grows. And so initially you have to find the grows and, and that's the job of law enforcement. And then you need to eradicate them because there's a cr criminal element there um, again, law enforcement is tasked with doing the eradication. But after that happens um, and the site is secure, you've got this big, disgusting mess on the land of trash and grow site infrastructure and chemicals and hazardous materials and propane tanks and tents and, and dead animals. Um, it can't stay there. And what we've been involved with in, in close partnership with the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the National Park Service is what we call the reclamation effort, which is essentially to, to go in sometimes by helicopter because these sites are so deep in, in our national forests and other public lands uh, to basically haul all that trash and all that infrastructure out of our environment uh, to hopefully return it to pristine condition. One of the most difficult parts of that is the removal of the hazardous materials because it, it actually takes special licensing and a lot of special training to get rid of that. And so that's been a real struggle to, to try to figure out the best way to get a, um, you know, a, an, a contaminated uh, sprayer or a bottle of carbofurin that's been compromised safely out of the forest and especially when they're miles and miles you know into the forest and so that's a huge cost to to the public um you know you have to get a special contractor to go in and deal with that but once you get all that material out of the forest um we hope uh you know we're still working triage here we're working on just getting that material out of the forest off our public lands and and the private lands um, let's say timber company private lands, who, you know, people trespassed on their lands to grow. We're still in that phase of getting all that foreign material and, and hazardous materials off the land, but then you still, you still got to restore the landscape, you know, rehab the, the springs that were dug out to, to support the, the cannabis production, uh, plant the trees that were cleared to make space for for growing cannabis plants and there's still so much more work to be done and um you know that that is going to definitely take a a lot of effort on the part of the agencies and, and the public being willing to to support uh funding that kind of process where we can return our our public and neighboring private lands to a natural and, and productive landscape how how much does it cost to do that 
for a single site, uh, you know, these range in size from 100 cannabis plants to 30,000 cannabis plants um, per site grown on, on our lands. Uh, it could range anywhere from, you know, let's say if one is close to the, to the road and we can hike out the material and put it in a dump truck and haul it away and quickly replant the area, uh, maybe $10,000. Uh, but, uh, you know, for these large sites that are in the middle of the forest and need a helicopter for two days to pull all the trash and material out, um, it could be upwards of fifty or $60,000 per site. Um, unfortunately, when we're talking about public land cultivation, there's thousands of them out there on, on California's public lands that, that still need to be dealt with. So in, in total, if we wanted to clean up California's uh, land mess from these illegal grows, maybe millions of dollars? Oh, definitely. Uh, I've heard some estimates by agency personnel and some, some folks who have uh, really looked at the, the task we have ahead of us, and it, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of it. millions of dollars. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I equate that to an oil spill, like uh, an oil spill we had in Orange County, October 2021. It was 8,320 acres, and that was a million dollar cleanup. So um, what you're saying is that to clean up California's, um, uh, you know, damaged um, public lands would cost multi-million dollars. That's um, several different oil spills. Exactly, yes. Wow. And how long does it take? Is, is this like a one-time couple helicopters clean up the mess or does it take um, years to get the soil back to um, a healthy state? Well, the, the initial removal of all the foreign material and the, the hazardous materials, it, it could be a several day process but to get the landscape back to the condition it was in prior to the, the growing of cannabis uh, years, I would say, you know, we, we actually have detected carboferrin in the soil at grows four years after application. So we know that the environment continues to be camp contaminated for a very long time afterwards. Um, you know, we, we know that the, the damage to the actual landscape, the, the soil and the, the terrain by the terracing that these growers will do remains, uh, you know, it, it really does often need actual active restoration versus, oh, you know, sometimes for these small grows, nature, let nature do its thing. Um, it'll remediate the soil after 10 years and the plants will grow back. Well, some of these are going to require a lot more than that. They're going to require active restoration by, by experienced teams. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes that could, it, it could be years before we get to. Sounds to like you have your sites. work cut out for you. Um, and, and you were telling me before that if you don't do that, if we just, you know, take out the trash, and you know, and take the people uh, away. They just come back to the same spot. Exactly. So we have, uh, you know, our partnership with the agencies. We we have reclaimed close to three hundred grows in California, and what we see is that there is a very small chance that once we remove all that infrastructure and all that trash 
there's a very small chance that the growers will come back and establish. Uh, whereas for those sites that are left uh, intact or, or all the infrastructure left behind, um, even if the, the sites are eradicated by law enforcement and suspects are taken into custody, they will wait a couple years and almost always come back and reestablish that site. So we think that one of the best um, one of the best solutions right now that that we have, besides you know law enforcement and enforcement actions to deal with these directly, one of the best sort of conservation solutions, um, which really helps. Uh, helps the environment, helps the public, and helps law enforcement by deterring growers from coming back is reclamation. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, one of these days, I want to I want to go with you on a field trip. You'll to show me uh, the grills. You said it's seasonal, right? It's not something yeah. that we can go anytime. Well, I, I'm sure that we could go to a, a grow that's been eradicated just about any time of the year. There's so many out there. Um, like I said, Southern California is no stranger to trespass cultivation. Uh, so yes, uh, we we're hoping to do some work uh, down in in Southern California this summer, some reclamation work. Um, now the the actual grows while the, the cultivators are there and growing is usually you know from March to September, October. Uh, but then they leave and all that mess is left behind. And, and that's that's usually when we do our reclamation work um, is in the late fall, winter and early spring. So any time of the year, you know, we, we could walk into one of these and, and see the damage. What is your um, final plea to public or our high truth listeners about our environmental health? You know, really, I I just want people to know that this problem exists. Know that uh, that weed is whatever your take is on it, whether you are a supporter or um, or otherwise. There's a huge side to it that if you don't already know it, you should know, which is that there are environmental costs. And just like everything, you know, everything has an environmental cost, this does too. And we really have to uh, understand the risks um, to human health, to the environment, and, and to, you know, our public lands from this activity uh, that I, I think more and more people are, are opening their eyes to an understanding, um, but, but it, it's a cost that often goes unseen. And I just, I, the more people that understand what's going on um, surrounding this product, uh, the better. And people can just, you know, make the, their, people are gonna make their own decisions, but they really should understand um, that there's a lot more to it than just what you see at face value. Yeah, and is this just a California problem or do we have this problem across the nation? Uh, it is it is heavy in California, but it certainly does not only occur here. Um, it's throughout the West, and it is actually a problem in certain states in the East as well. And so, you know, it's not just a, 
Um, Kentucky, I heard it's Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, uh, Kentucky has a, a, a very big illicit uh, marijuana industry there as well. And I'm sure other states in the East too. As well. Wow, it's amazing. I agree. This is important. People should know and, and realize that it's another cost to um, to the of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to say thank you to Ann Sam. Ann Sam's our amazing nurse. Uh, I work with her for years and she is a dedicated professional expert and gives compassionate care to patients during their most scary time of their lives in the emergency department. And thank you, Dr. Greta Wenger, for your expertise, dedication to our environmental health. We are all sharing this planet and have a duty to take care of it. Thank you, Dr. Lev. It was great to talk with you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.